so before we begin, um, I just want to say a quick prayer. Um, Lord, I pray that as we listen and read scripture today, um, let the words change our hearts. And I pray that you lead me to honest interpretations um, and you aid me in sharing the gospel this morning. Um, also, while Sharon is back home, I pray that you don't let her go into labor. Um, amen. Uh, so to preview today's sermon, just to give you a sneak peek and, and where we're going to be going, uh, we're going to be looking at John 11 and 12, and I'm going to focus first on the anointing of Jesus, which is kind of sandwiched in the middle, and the gospel parallels that connect to it, and then we're going to circle back around and talk about the plot to kill Jesus and Lazarus. And so let's launch right in. We're picking up where Dan left off from two weeks ago, uh, so to give you some context, um, since it's not really clear in the scripture, um, this is immediately after Lazarus has been decomposing in the tomb for four days. Uh, they open the tomb. Jesus raises him to life. Um, his limbs and his head are still wrapped tight, so he's waddling out of the tomb. And Jesus commands his disciples to unbind his burial shrouds. Um, so if you want to turn to John 11.45, um, we'll read through to John 12.12. 12, um, and you can find it in your Bible and up on the screens above. Hear the words of God. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them that Jesus, what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what do we do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will be believing in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day to from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. And Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Now six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
Now, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also with, to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the anointing of Jesus is an event that happens in all four Gospels. And before moving along explaining the narrative, though, uh, one issue I want to address is that while this story appears in three of the Gospels, exactly in parallel, uh, even down to the minute details, the, the account in Luke is different and unique. And I want to address this because some people forcefully try to think, uh, try to link the stories to one uh, to one another in Luke to show harmony in the Gospels. Uh, but the stories are different, and it's important that they are different. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are clear that they occur at the end of Jesus' ministry less than a week before the Last Supper. And Luke, the most chronological of the Gospels, is clear that his anointing narrative is near the beginning of Jesus' ministry at chapter seven, at Luke chapter 7, verse 26. Um, if you want to follow up with this later, um, I believe it's page 1027 in the Pew Bibles. And the account of the Last Supper doesn't occur until chapter 22 in Luke. So there is a chronological gap between the anointing, showing that Luke's version is a whole other event that is separate from the anointing we'll be looking at today. Um, more importantly, the lessons of those narratives have vastly different implications. Um, I was going to read from Luke, uh, but it's also a long segment of scripture, um, so I'll simply paraphrase. Um, in Luke, Jesus is sitting at Simon the Pharisee's house at the beginning of his ministry, an unnamed prostitute. Uh, comes into the house uninvited. She cries profusely at Jesus' feet to the point that she's actually drenching them and washing them with her tears. She perfumes him, kisses his feet, dries him with her hair, and then Jesus gives a convicting parable to the Pharisees on forgiving debts and proclaims forgiveness on the woman. I encourage you to go back after after the sermon and read the section of Luke. Um, It's a gut-wrenching story of the heaviness of guilt and the freedom that we have in Christ. Um, and if I'm being honest, it's probably a better segment of scripture to preach from. Um, but we're preaching exegetically, so I'm going through John. Uh, so for now, just trust me, they are different. Uh, Luke is markedly separated from John in its meaning, and these differences are essential because they provide a varied glimpse of who Christ is, showing um, who he is in the beginning and who he is at the end. There are rich juxtapositions and comparisons, and Jesus' So, for instance, Jesus is gathering his disciples early on in his ministry in Luke. And by the end of John, he's readying for them to betray him and deny him. Christ is the only one who forgives sins in Luke, but he's also the only one who who gives life in John. Jesus rebukes the religious authorities in one instance, but then he glorifies lowly people when they nourish his body, uh, which Paul would later expound uh, is the church. The most interesting, I think, is that Jesus was invited in Luke. They asked him to dine with the Pharisees in Luke, but in John, at the end of his ministry, he's in hiding from them. There's a be on the lookout order for him, and he's having dinner with a former leper, also named Simon, but different from the Pharisee, eating with a person who would later betray him, likely his other 11 disciples, and I think, of keynote, a former dead person. Uh, So before we go any further, I want to paint a picture of what is happening during the anointing of Jesus as it's depicted in John, Matthew, and Mark. And so I'll give you a few more details for context. Um, And I think the Lord in his wisdom uh, gave different 
details and snippets of information in each of the Gospels that paint a very rich picture when you compare them all. Um, so, for instance, uh, Matthew and Mark say that this dinner was being hosted at Simon the leper's house. Um, it's important to remember that Simon would be a former leper. As they're preparing themselves to go to Passover, they're purifying themselves. Um, so Simon would no longer be a leper. Um, it doesn't say it in Scripture. I don't think it's too far of a logical jump to show that he might have been healed by Jesus. Um, but that's me preaching into it. Um, Bethany, uh, Bethany, though, the town is actually a mile and a half from East Jerusalem. And Bethany is now actually in Palestinian territory. But it's still known as Al-Ezariah, which means the place of Lazarus. And so from John, we know that Martha was helping with serving at Simon's house for his guests, while Lazarus, Judas, John, and likely the other disciples reclined at the table. Now, Mary comes in with a jar of ointment. And from Matthew and Mark, we know that the jar was made out of alabaster. And and alabaster is, uh, it's a type of soft stone, uh, it's carvable gypsum. So you'd kind of compare it to soapstone um, or like a soft porcelain. And from Mark, we know that she had to break the jar, similar to how you would have to break a glass ampule uh, to get a precious liquid out in chemistry class. And so once it was opened, it could no longer be sealed again. And from Mark and John, we know that the oil was made out of pure nard or spike nard. And nard is an oil that is harvested from a plant that grows only in the Himalayas. And so the oil would have to be harvested from plants in China and India, extracting all the oils out of it, putting it into a fragile piece of stoneware, transporting it thousands of miles to the Middle East by camel and horse and foot. And so this jar has quite a testament of the ancient economies and trade routes, but um, you can actually still buy it today. It still exists. Um, And I checked on Amazon yesterday. It's still pretty expensive. The current price for nard oil is about $20 an ounce. Um, So we know she used about a pound. Um, or 16 ounces. So even with today's modern methods and supply chains, Mary's perfume would still cost over $320. Now, that's a hefty cost uh, for me, even by today's standards. Um, but we know from John's record that this costed about 300 denarii, and a denarii was a day's wage. So 300 days of labor, about a year's salary. So with the U.S. median salary, uh, which is about $50,000, um, but since she was a woman of antiquity, to be conservative, let's have that and then have it again. So um, for the sake of the argument, let's say it's $12,000. Now, I think very highly of Dan, uh, but I would never go pour $10,000 of perfume on him. And, But th- that's precisely the point. Second coming, non-glorified human form, would I anoint him as king? Would I be willing to throw away tens of thousands of dollars to glorify him? And if I'm honest, I would not even notice him. The scriptural text confirms this. And so Judas questions Mary's act of service with indignation. Now, I would hope that Judas is worse than I am, that he reacts worse than any HPPC member would react. It's not like we betrayed Jesus. Um, But just as an insider, a random uh, trivia factoid, I find it very telling that Judas's payment for betraying Jesus was 30 pieces of silver, which is about 30 denarii. So Mary's honoring of Jesus was literally ten times more valuable than Judas's betrayal. Anyway, continuing on. Certainly Judas's reaction was special and one that only he would have because he was a thief and a betrayer. But the scripture exposes humanity's depravity and, and more importantly, your, yours and my depravity. The text from Mark says that the apostles jointly scolded her. The Greek word Mark uses is henna brimonto. 
And it's the third person plural, which means that Judas and the apostles grumbled. So scripture shows that this is not a prince of sinners issue, but this is an ordinary human response. Christ purposefully picked common men with common jobs and common upbringings to be his apostles. He uses human weakness to showcase his strength. And now I am no better than the apostles are, nor are you. However, the foundational sin that infects all of us, the curse that feeds into all other sins, is one of idolatry. Saying that I am God and God isn't. The human condition is to try and act godly in whatever perverted way we do that. But despise and loathe the things that cry out for redemption and for saving. So if that is true, would I act like Mary or would I act like Judas? When given the opportunity to glorify Christ, you and me and everyone else on earth fail in that task miserably. Moreover, we innately look down with self-righteous pity at the needy and the grieving. I know it surprises people, but Sharon is not And I don't think it's going without saying that I'm still a sinner, and I'm in constant need of God's ongoing mercy. Now, I am human, and I am separated in need of God, yet there is not, there is an impossible gap that separates us from God's love. So how do we earn God's mercy? For that answer, let's turn back to John 11, uh, to the meeting of the Pharisees. And so during that meeting, Caiaphas, the high priest, the man who would call for Jesus' arrest, made a prophecy. And there are a few things that stand out about that. Number one is that uh, Caiaphas is essentially a plant or a stooge for Rome and for Herod. So when the priesthood was first established back in the Old Testament, uh, they were all from the tribe of the Levites. And their succession ran from father to son and was passed down um, by, uh, by bloodlines. And as the familial lines became broken, as the nation of Israel went into exile, as the empires rose to conquer Israel... By the time we get to this story, the high priests ended up becoming political appointees for Herod. So Caiaphas had very little in common with Aaron in the tent of meeting. Secondly, the purpose of a priest is to offer sacrifices for the people of Israel, for the sins of the priest, for his own sins, and to be a steward of the priestly vestments, the instruments of the temple, and the temple itself. So the high priest had a special privilege of entering the Holy of Holies, the resting place of God. But in no place in scripture is the priest's job description to make prophecy. So we know that Caiaphas isn't the priestly line as ordained by God in Exodus and Leviticus. And we know that he is doing extracurricular prophesying and making proclamations. Now there are five ways you can identify prophecy. And you can compare it against scripture to see if it's true or it's not true. Um, So the first is, where does the message come from? Where is the proof? What is the substance of the message? What is the status of the prophet? How are the people changed by the prophecy? And what is the fruit of the prophecy? So looking at Caiaphas' prophecy, number one, the proof text, the statement that he uses that Christ should die, that one man should die for the sake of the nation is coming from a rabbinical text, but it's not in scripture. Number two, the content of the message, his prophecy is about preserving the nation state of Israel, but not about glorifying God or the Messiah. Number three, the status of the prophet. Caiaphas wasn't a true prophet, not like Samuel or Elijah. Number four, his personal change. His prophecy actually converted the priests and turned them from preparing themselves for Passover to focus on finding and killing Jesus. And the end consequences. His prophecy led to the death 
of an innocent man. Now, the great thing about the plot to kill Jesus, if there is a great thing about it, is, and this holds true for, for this story and also for the rest of Holy Week, is that God redeemed sin. God uses the betrayal of Jesus for the good of all humankind. God uses sin sinlessly. So when Caiaphas illegitimately prophesies in John eleven fifty, and it says, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the nation, not that the nation should perish. His prophecy was purely about propping up a false government, a false religion, and preserving the puppet, the ruler Herod. But how does God redeem that errant prophecy? And you see this in verse 51 and 52. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What Caiaphas illegitimately foretold, excuse me, what Caiaphas illegitimately foretold, but nonetheless accurately became true, was atonement. He saw that Israel would be saved through the death of one man. But he missed what John is laying out very clearly for us. Israel would no longer be a kingdom of Jews and Jews only in the middle of the Middle East. The church is now that one nation. You and I are now God's children. We are no longer separated from God. And John is proclaiming what Galatians exclaims in chapter 3. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. By the death that Caiaphas prophesied, that Judas sold his soul for, that Mary was preparing for, that death of Jesus the King, by that death you and I are saved. Our sins are forgiven. The bridge between man and God is reconnected. The veil that separated us is torn in two. Now, if you don't know Jesus with your heart, if you don't know the freedom from the weight of sin, and you'd like to, I encourage you to talk to me or any of the elders. And I would love to hear your story and share more fully the story of Jesus. But the story does not stop. There is more. Christ not only died for our sins, but he also gives new life through him. Our history doesn't end at Good Friday and the cross. It continues on. Jesus died. He was laid in the tomb, just like Lazarus. And just like Lazarus, his body was prepared for burial. But he rose again. And the new life that he has, that he gave us previews of with Lazarus, is one that those that believe in Christ alone and faith alone receive grace alone. And there is a richness to the new life that we have in Christ There are endless glories and benefits in eternity. But I tell you a hard truth that being a Christian on this side of eternity does not completely emancipate us from the pains of sin. We still have a war of our wills waging in us. Paul talks about this in Romans 7 saying, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Lazarus' second go at life wasn't perfect. 
Lazarus was resurrected back into the same sinful world that he died into. The the same sin-soaked body. The same broken-by-sin mind that he died with. But Lazarus got to see a sliver of the promises. A fleeting foretaste. John tells us that the Pharisees try to kill Lazarus because people came to see Lazarus. But they left believing in Jesus. But how do you threaten a man who has already died? What can you do to hold over a man who has been the recipient of actual resurrection? Now, we don't know what happens to Lazarus. We find out, we don't, we ever, we don't ever find out whether the Pharisees got to him or if he lived like John and lived to a ripe old age and died a second time of natural causes. But I know that Jesus loved him and I hope to see him in eternity and hear his story. Now, I want to leave with, with one final thought. What, what was Lazarus's most important part of his story? What was the most important thing he did with his life? Was it that he died and was resurrected? Was it that he was a friend of Jesus? The answer is that he led people to Christ because they saw the newness of life in him. Do I or you lead people to Christ with the new lives that we have in Jesus? Romans 8 exhorts us this way. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears himself witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So if you believe in Christ, if you believe that he is king, if you believe that he died for your sins, and that Christ lives eternally, then you, by your mere belief, will live eternally as well. So I would hope that when people see you, they see your life, they see the acts of your heart and the acts of your hands, they leave you believing in Christ. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that our life is transformed um, to a greater extent than you transformed Lazarus. Um, We pray, Lord, that you change our hearts, that you are glorified in what we do and what we say, and that in our humility, in our service to others, and not out of judgment or jealousy, that we proclaim your name and we put you first. Um, I pray, Lord, that our lives are glorifying to you, um, that our lives are a testament to the work that you have done, to the righteousness that you have, to the holiness that you give us. And I pray, Lord, that people are changed by our testimonies. We love you, Lord, and we give you all the glory. Amen.